0: On occasions when I've um, preached and said to people it would be good to keep your Bibles open at this place and then I've got to the end of the sermon and thought no, they really did. Um, But could I suggest that you at least put your Care and Connect cards in the space so that you can quickly find it if you need to just to see if I'm wrong or right. Let's pray. God our Father, we commit this time to you and ask that your spirit would open our hearts and minds help us to understand what you are saying If there are things that we need to know, may he imprint that on our minds. Uh, If there are things that we need to change in our lives from your word, may the uh, evil one not take those things away before we get to act on them. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Elisha was dying. You didn't need the gift of prophecy to see that. But so significant a person was he in the life of God's Old Testament people, Israel and Judah, that as soon as he heard the news, the king himself hurried to the old man's sickbed. And as he lay there, weak and feeble, Elisha said to King Joash, Open the eastward window, take a bow and a quiver of arrows, choose an arrow and draw the string. It was a strange request but the king did as he'd been told. And then the old man reached out, placed his hand on the king's. Now shoot, he said. If this was a Monty Python sketch the king would have turned around and said oh, we just lost the high priest. But not a, not a Monty Python sketch. Now shoot. The king released a string. And the arrow flew out the window, and Elisha cried out from his bed, The Lord's arrow of victory, victory over the Syrians. Now take up the other arrows, he said, and strike the ground with them for your victories over the Syrians. Now maybe it all seemed a little bit too theatrical. Maybe he thought the old guy finally starting to lose it. But whatever the reason he gave the, the king just gave a fairly yeah okay bang 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 response and the old prophet heaved a deep sigh and said only three strikes you should have done five or six then you would have been victorious over the syrians five or six times the syrians hold over you would have been completely broken as it is already gets three and further along in that chapter, as we read the summary of international relationships of the time, we're told three times Joash defeated the king of Syria and he regained the lost cities of Israel. And you see what's going on there, don't you? At first glance, it sounds like we need to say, good man, Joash, all those cities that we lost, you got them back for us, top staff. But that was all he did. The Syrians' home territory, their, their, their power base, stayed. That quirky little story from the depths of the Old Testament shows a couple of things, but what I wanted to use it to highlight, to introduce, is that it's a classic illustration of opportunity lost. A God-given opportunity had been presented to a man, and we can make all sorts of guesses as to why, but for some reason he lets that chance pass him by. Opportunity lost the part of the Bible we're looking at today as you know is not in the Old Testament we're going to spend some time in Luke 16 mostly in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus although we can't do justice to that parable without taking a, a, a few things of note from the rest of the chapter as well before starting out though there's three things that I want to touch on briefly things that um, will flavor our understanding of what we're looking at maybe even affect how it is we want to apply what we see to our own circumstances. The first is a big picture thing. Uh, the background for this particular story and this chapter, in fact, and indeed this whole section of the Bible, uh, this whole section of the gospel, I should say, is uh, Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. Sometimes when we think about Jesus and the Pharisees, we think of two opposing, two opposing uh, sides just sort of butting heads. But I don't think Jesus wants so much to win arguments as he does to open people's eyes. He wants the Pharisees to see. He wants them to understand. He wants them in the kingdom as well. But if they won't be honest with themselves, then he'll open the eyes of other people by bouncing off the Pharisees. So in the telling of these parables, Jesus isn't just spouting off in a vacuum. No, he's, he's saying what he's saying over and against what the Pharisees say and do. And that will affect things for us as we look at this and try and work out what it means. Second, this Jesus-Pharisee thing starts off, I think, back in chapter 13. And the story we're looking at now, this one about uh, the rich man and Lazarus, actually finishes the section. It brings it to a conclusion. And closing statements, whether they're in a letter or a debate or a a book or a story, uh, often have the effect of giving it direction. They help to make clear what the whole thing has been really about. I remember when I was in infant school we had to take turns in telling a story to the class, a couple of kids each day, and there were three or four standards that would appear and be repeated over and over again, day by day. One of those was the hare and the tortoise. And uh, at the very end of that story, I think we're on to another slide, are we? Bingo, thank you. At the end of that story, every time it was told, the the, uh, final statement was, slow and steady wins the race. If you didn't say that, you hadn't told it properly. Actually, I I think the real moral of that story is overconfidence and stupidity loses the race, but uh, that's another thing. Closing statements make a point. They give direction, and this parable... The whole parable, uh, the one of the rich man and Lazarus, is a closing statement on the section of Jesus and and the Pharisees. The third thing I want to draw your attention to is there's a sort of a cohesion to this chapter, the whole of chapter 16. You might have noticed, if you're aware of the previous uh, parable that's there, that both parables, the one about the shrewd manager that comes earlier on and this one now start off with the same words. There was a rich man who... That's a clue, I think. You might be thinking of being a bit inventive, aren't you? But remember, this chapter, chapter 16, immediately, immediately follows on a, a very tied together one. Chapter 15, there are three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Three lost things. Their stories belong together. So today's chapter, the very, very next one, is not a one-off. If you think back to those ones, though, in chapter 15, those parables aren't really about the lost things, are they? They're about what I'll call the owner of the lost things. If you had a hundred sheep, Jesus says to his opponents. If a woman had ten silver coins, that's how the second one kicks off. A man had two sons, is how the third one starts. The owner, the father, in each case the beginning of the story, the opening words tell us what he's on about in that story who we need to ultimately focus on if we're going to really get what it is that he's on about so when we come to the story we're looking at today now like the other one in chapter 16 and we see it starts off there was a rich man who who is the story really about whose words and attitudes and actions are we meant to look at to see what Jesus is trying to get across In both cases, it's the rich man. Both parables in chapter 16, whatever else is in the story, uh, whatever else they do, whoever else they might be, when you get to the end, look at the rich guy. There might be other bits that are instructive or interesting or challenging, all that. But if you don't look at the rich bloke, you miss the most important bit. With the earlier parable, that's actually a bit of a surprise that's a story where a boss finds out that uh, the manager uh, in his job has been getting a bit slack and so the boss messages the manager and says look you and I need to have a face-to-face I'll see you in a couple of days and I want you to show me what you have actually been doing and if the reports the boss has heard are true which they evidently are this bloke's going to get the bullet no first warning second warning third warning no probation mediation just termination and after that, nobody, no employer will touch this guy with a 10-foot barge pole. He'll never get another manager's job, never. he would be lucky even to, do, to end up digging ditches. So what's he going to do? He quickly gets in touch with all the blokes uh, that owe his boss money and he speaks to each one personally. I think that's, in, that's, uh, that's significant. How about I sign off on a 20% discount? Special favour, just for you he doesn't say it in the story as as he tells it uh, when jesus tells the parable but i take it the blokes could hardly wait to do it Uh, and they paid on the spot while the offer was still good but what has this fellow done in doing that in the brief time available to him he's turned his prospects 180 degrees around the boss can say as many negative things as he likes as far as all these other ones out here are concerned these guys that he's done a favour for, the sun, moon and stars shine out of him. I mean, the boss is probably chuffed in actual fact, not having to chase a whole lot of bad debts anyway. But uh, nevertheless, this guy has turned his prospects around. Now, what do you have to do when you get to the end of that story? Remember what I said? Look at the rich bloke. That's how it starts off. And that's a bit of a surprise with that one, because we think it's all about the slick manager. All we're told about the boss is that, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And people often slide over that little bit because it doesn't seem to make sense. You commend someone who's just pulled a Swifty on you. Uh, do you do that and, and cost you money? Is that the right thing to do? Is that the thing people do? Uh, and uh, given the debtors a free break? People often toss that bit into the too hard basket. But you see, that is the very thing Jesus wants us to focus on. There was a rich man who? More than money, the rich man recognises the worth of shrewdness, of seeing an opportunity, of making the most of that opportunity. As far as the rich man is concerned, a shrewd person can always turn things into a good outcome. If there isn't opportunity there, he'll make it. A dummy will lose money, no matter how much he's got. So it's about opportunity. Leave the rich man out and you're left floundering of that one. But we're not actually majoring on that parable. We're just seeing how that parable goes so we're set up for the one we're really looking at. We've just been saying that in both of these stories... We have to look at the rich guy. In today's parable, what do we see about this rich guy? Well, for a start, he has it all, doesn't he? He's got the best of clothes, we're told. Purple and fine linen. Purple dye they got from uh, the ink of a particular shellfish that was uh, hard to get to and uh, nowhere near where they were living and only a... A small amount, a tiny bit, could be harvested from each creature. So purple-coloured material was a very rare thing and therefore extravagantly expensive. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. Not only were the average person's clothes homemade, but so was the material those clothes were made from. Uh, They were were spun and put together uh, on uh, crude wooden implements. So clothes, serviceable enough for the average person, but pretty rough and scratchy. Not for our Mr. Moneybags, though. No chafing or itching for him. He had the best of clothes. And he had the best of food. That's how it's described. Sumptuous, one version of the Bible puts it. Caught on blur stuff. He didn't just eat at the chef kitchen, he owned it. And did you notice as well, Not only was the quality superb, but the quantity was lavish in its proportions as well. Other people ate. He feasted. So that other version I mentioned a moment ago has it. The best of food in obscene proportions. On special occasions? No. Once a week? No. Every day. So he dresses well. He eats well and he lives well. This is a small detail, but what else does this rich man have? He has a gate. Well, whoopity whoop, you say, I've got one of those, or I had one of those once. But think about it. In those times, you really only had a gate if you had a yard. And you only had a yard if you didn't need every square metre of ground to squeeze your dwelling onto. And if you had someone that you paid, or maybe better slaves, to tend it for you. And what's more, you only had a gate if you had a a wall. And you only had a wall if you had something worth protecting in the first place anyway, possessions of value. So what do we have here? We've got a fellow who in the things of this world lacks for nothing. He's got it all in excess, far more than he could ever need. What about the second man in the story? What's he got? Well, he's not merely poor, is he? Someone who struggles to earn a living. He's a beggar. He depends on others to provide for him. And if you note the detail, you can see something of the extent of that. Think about the person Jesus puts into the story. Let me ask, does this guy go day by day and sit by the rich man's gate to beg? No, he doesn't. Notice, he is laid there. And I gather laid is putting it fairly politely. The same word uh, initially could also mean tossed or dumped. Now, in that society, who gets carried around from place to place, put down to beg and then left there? People who can't walk for themselves, of course. So he's poor, he begs, he's crippled. And here's another detail. The rich man, we're told, is covered with fine clothes. When you look at the rich man, that is what you see. That is what catches your attention. With the poor man, there's another covering that catches your attention, isn't there? Something entirely different to what the rich man's got. He's covered not with with fine clothes, but with sores. And this is not just appearance, realize. Uh, This is pain, This is smell. This is comments by people going by and looking at you. So while the rich man has the best food in abundance every day, see what the poor man has. If you were making up the story, if you were doing the Jesus thing, telling the story to someone, if you were trying to set up a contrast, what would you have the poor man eating compared to the rich man? Small amounts of plain food every now and then? Nope. In Jesus' story, the poor man has less than that. Just a few table scraps, maybe. Stuff on its way to the garbage bin. No, Lazarus gets, Lazarus gets even less than that. He gets the dream of a few table scraps. As the garbage goes past, he gets the wish, the unfulfilled wish, that a few bits might just come his way. So this is a story of contrast on the one hand someone with just so much and on the other hand on the other hand someone whose need is immense not just rich but obscenely wealthy excessively indulgent the other guy if you had nothing you'd be well off compared to him There's a couple of other details that are important to pick up on too question Where was the poor man laid? He was laid by the rich man's gate. We've said that. Which means that the rich man cannot fail to see him as he comes and goes. And the rich man actually gives the game away a bit later on anyway when he's asking Abraham for a favor and says, send Lazarus to do this, send Lazarus to do that. How does he recognize Lazarus? How does he know his name? He knows him because he saw him every day. He knew him because he knew he was there. He knew who he was, he knew where he was. He knew what his position, his circumstances were. So here is a picture of opportunity missed. No doubt about the man's capacity. No doubt about about the other man's need. No doubt that the situation was seen and recognised. And just to damn the rich man even more, just to highlight how even further uncaring he was, as the poor man sits by the rich man's gate, Lazarus does, seem some, does receive some care. He does receive some ministry. There is at least some expression of compassion towards him, isn't there? By the dogs. I and mean, If they were hungry, they would have taken a bite. They didn't take a bite. When a dog licks a wound, it's done as a first aid thing. It's done for comfort. It's done to heal. Yeah, It's instinctive, sure. The dog didn't take a first aid course. But that's the point, isn't it? Even the dogs reflexively care for him. It's just what you do. The mongrel packs that roam the streets offer more comfort to this man than the rich fella did. And in doing that, they show him up for the cold and heartless and selfish person that he is. And there's another way these two, these two men contrast to each other as well. Something that in one way really stands out in the tale. You might have picked that up already. One of them has a name. And that doesn't make Lazarus special in this parable only. This makes Lazarus unique amongst all the stories Jesus told. In no other parable does a character receive a name. So do you think that might be significant? Do you think that might uh, uh, matter somehow? Especially when you realise that in that time and that place, names had meanings. And those meanings were intended in some way to be appropriate for the person. When you look at this fellow, you look at his name's meaning, the gist of it is, God is my helper. And that makes sense. God is the one that poor old Lazarus Looks to because he has no one else to look to. No one else is going to care for him. The name says it all. He commits himself to God and he dies. Now, in the telling of that story, that is not a tragedy in itself. It's something that will happen to all of us. It's something to happen to all people, all of Jesus' listeners at the time. Uh, unless Jesus comes first, it'll happen to all of us. It's what comes after that matters. He dies. And his soul receives an angelic escort to glory. I was taking my daughter to school one day, and we came to an intersection uh, where the traffic lights turned red for us and for the people over there, and they stayed red. What's going on? I was tempted to actually go through, but suddenly a motorbike cop came roaring up and, and occupied a place in the middle of the intersection stop, wait. Moments later, a black limo came along, no flags, no markings to say anything else about it, but it passed through in front of us. There were two more motorbike cops uh, riding abreast in front, two two more behind. Uh, As soon as they'd gone through, the first one shot off after them, and uh, moments after that, The lights turned green and everything went back to normal again. Who was it in the car? I don't know, but someone important, someone who mattered, had just gone by. The escort they received, the treatment they got, told us that. Lazarus dies and receives an angelic escort. And on arrival, he's greeted with open arms by the revered father of the nation, Seen as a nobody all his life. Lazarus is in ultimate and eternal reality a somebody. He matters. He truly matters. The rich man dies and he gets something too. He gets a burial. That's what he gets. That's all he gets. The next time you see him he's in a not so happy place. There's obviously still parts of this parable I could work through, but for now I want to draw back a bit. I've said the parables here in chapter 16 are about opportunity or or shrewdness, as the earlier parable has it. Recognising the path that leads to your long-term advantage and making sure that you are on that path. I've also said that to get the focus right with these stories that Jesus told, we have to watch the rich guy. Now, if all we had was the first parable we might decide that Jesus is trying to pull our attention, as he does in other places, to the way that the pursuit and possession of wealth can blind people to what's of ultimate value. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's going to say that in just a couple of chapters' time. And that's especially so if you're thinking about today's passage when the bad guy is a rich guy. But to end there, to stop at that point, is to stop short. It misses the real point. See, the Pharisees are a constant presence over these chapters, remember. And yes, they were lovers of money, we've been told that, but they were already wealthy in another way, already. That's where that funny little bit in between these two parables comes in. The bit the NIV translators don't know what to do with, and they just label it as additional teachings. It's not additional teachings. It's part of the whole message in chapter 16. That's where it's pointing. And it's also where Abraham's words to the rich man at the end of our parable today point. That's where these words insist we go because the Pharisees, more than anybody else in the place, are rich in their knowledge of the kingdom of God, Moses and the prophets, as they put it. The common herd that the Pharisees looked down upon, the everyday people that uh, Jesus appealed to and uh, before him, John the Baptist. um, uh, These people were stampeding their way into the kingdom. What Jesus was proclaiming, they wanted to be in on they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says to the Pharisees, in effect, look, the word of God is still the word of God. That isn't going to change. And you guys, you guys have Moses and the prophets. You are rich. So feed them. Feed them. They don't know their right hand from their left. And you've got so much. You're so rich. Do something. Where, though, is the rich man today in our generations? Well, who has abundant access to God's word? Not just one copy, but translation after translation and freely available. Who is able every week to feed on good, sound, heart-moving exposition of that word? Who has access to book after book that opens up God's word and explains it? Who has opportunity to gather together with others of like mind who are on the same journey and spend time working through God's word to understand it better to be a better informed on walking a straight path and what that means who more than any other generation in history by simply going online has access to resources that our forebears could never even dream of who is the rich man guys you know what I'm going to, what I'm going to say here we are the rich man we are But we're the rich man this side of the funeral. We're the rich man with opportunity still open to us. We're the rich man with the chance of of showing our genuineness in the kingdom by what we do with what we have. Please don't be offended when I say all that. There'll be plenty plenty here, I know, who are doing that. What Paul describes as working out your own salvation. But we can always do it better. I know I can. There will always be opportunities we should have taken. There will always be opportunities we should be seeing. And if you've been enjoying all the goodies God's got to give, but you haven't started giving out yet, then please look for the opportunities and pray. Pray for open eyes to see it, open ears to hear it knocking, and boldness to take it when it comes. Let's pray. God, our Father, we take to heart the lesson Jesus taught his hearers and us through the person of the rich man. We pray that you would give us open eyes to see when you give us opportunities to bring your word to and, and the good things you've given us to bear, to help others or to teach others or to encourage others. We pray that you would help us to see them, the opportunities when they come. Help us to know them and recognise them and give us the boldness and the wisdom to take them rightly. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.